Well, hello. Uh, my name is Chris Burnett. Uh, my wife is one of the leaders here at EWG. I'm in the Sojourners Fellowship Group, so some of you we know pretty well, and I teach at the Master's Seminary. Um, we know each other a little bit because on those occasions that my wife leads you in singing, I uh, help by playing the piano. But I find it a little ironic to be teaching you in this environment like this, because on those occasions that I serve you in music, I'm turned sideways and I'm basically just trying to keep the tempo and stay in the right key. And so I don't actually get to look at you. And here we are. And now's my opportunity to serve you through the word of God. And I still can't see you. (laughs) Well, as we jump into this special fellowship time, and it is a special fellowship time, whether or not we can actually see each other, uh, we want to study Romans 15, verse 14, all the way through to the end of the book. So let me first congratulate you and the Lord for actually reaching the end of the book. You've spent all year undertaking this journey in Romans, and, and now you've come to the place where you have completed it. So congratulations. That's a wonderful accomplishment. And I'm sure that like my wife, you've been nourished by your study of this letter in so many deeply personal ways that you would have never imagined from the outset. Uh, I'm sure you love Christ more deeply as a result. I'm sure that you are more indebted to him for this great salvation that you've studied in this gospel of God. And aren't you so grateful to God that he had Paul write this letter Romans is so clearly and so poignantly detailed with the gospel of God. It's on the basis of these truths in the book of Romans that we walk confidently and more confidently in our faith. We move through life with a settled peace and with a greater hope in heaven, the more we understand the book of Romans. So in this final week of your study of the book, we really do have a lot of ground to cover. And boy, don't you know it as you've been working through the passage. It's Romans 15, verse 14, all the way through the end of chapter 16, verse 27. And that's a lot. (laughs) So let's take some time to make sure that we don't get into the weeds uh, and um, get lost somehow in what we're trying to accomplish, especially as all these biographical lists start to pop up. Um, Let's see how this part of the book actually fits in Paul's overall argument. And so I trust you're following along in your Bibles with me as I just quickly work through the text. Well, you start in Romans 15, 14 for this week, and this is the fifth and final section of the book that was started in chapter 12. In this new part, Paul lays out an exciting vision of his future ministry that he wants to carry westward, which should include a forthcoming visit to the readers in Rome. Well, he's already mentioned from chapter one, uh, Uh, his goal for this visit. And now that he's through the doctrinal portion of the letter, he's finishing the letter where he began recalling his love for the Romans, his desire to be with them soon. And as you'll probably recall in this fifth section of the book, he highlights many important ways that the gospel applies God's righteousness to everyday life. From chapter 12 up to this point, he's been illustrating how God's righteousness will manifest itself in the lives of true believers. The gospel reveals unity in the body of Christ, and the response to the gospel will be a striving for greater unity to be revealed in a visible, tangible way among us. So chapter 12 in this section details how the use of our spiritual giftedness and our love will serve the family of God according to the gospel of God's righteousness. 
Chapter 13 teaches us, as you know very well, that we need to manifest God's righteousness in our obedience to the government, no matter how difficult that might be. And that's no easy challenge. But it also stresses that we're to extend love toward our neighbors, those who are not in the household of faith. Now, chapter 14, up to where you've gotten so far in the middle of chapter 15, uh, encourages so great a love in unity that we would actively remove any stumbling blocks to the kind of fellowship that is created by and uh, demanded by the gospel. So as we dive into 1514 today and go beyond that, we want to carefully read and read well and think deeply about these final verses. But I need to give you a couple cautions as we jump in. First, even though information and lists seem so biographical to Paul and deal with uh, a context in the Romans church where we perhaps don't even know the players uh, and, and it can seem so elusive Don't turn your brain off. Don't close your hearts. The gospel message is coming right through, even in these lists. The gospel remains central in this section, as it always has. And so we need to perhaps, though, more carefully evaluate how these contents tie to the gospel. And in the Lord's grace, I hope that we can do that together. Now, a second caution would be, as we close out the letter, you could write it all off as epilogue. Not really anything more than just interesting information that's tacked on to the serious doctrinal work, because after all, is learning who greets whom as important as learning about who redeemed whom? These are some of the traps that we can get in. But instead, if the gospel remains Paul's central topic throughout the letter, then he has a specific gospel-centered use for this final little bit, and we need to grab onto it and use it as part of his means for our sanctification. So let's get on with it already. Well, if we put a section title on 1514 all the way through 1627, I, I think we could probably call it this, God's righteousness displayed in Paul's mission. God's righteousness displayed in Paul's mission. Every section up till now keys very directly to the topic of God's righteousness as displayed in the gospel. And that's what we've been saying most recently, but all of the book is to this. And so in the remaining section, Paul highlights how the gospel is doing this. It's triumphing over Satan everywhere that God has him plant a church because he is the apostle to the Gentiles and God will triumph through him to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. So desiring to manifest this universal scope of the gospel Uh, where people from east to west will be made righteous through the blood of Christ, Paul takes the time to walk us through his travels, past, present, and future. The first part of Paul's travelogue spans these initial verses that we'll study, 15 verses 14 to 21. Paul's just explained all the way up to uh, verse 13 uh, how Christ has become the servant of of both the circumcised in keeping with the ancient promises of the old Testament prophets and servant of the uncircumcised in keeping with God's mercy. Now in the present section, Paul really bookends the topics that he laid down the first 15 verses of the letter from uh, chapter one, one through 15. Now at the end of it, he's relaying once again, his message and his objectives. And these are clear to the Romans. There's no suggestion that the Romans don't understand his ministry or don't in some way already understand and believe to the point of obedience, his gospel. 
But nevertheless, back in 115, Paul stated that he wanted to preach the gospel to the Romans. And at the same time, in verse 8 of chapter 1, he attested to their ever-expanding testimony of faith. So we can conclude that when Paul says that he longs to proclaim the gospel to the Romans, it's not so much for their salvation as it is for their sanctification, for their edification, the building up of the body for the sake of ministry to the glory of Christ. Now, in our passage from verse 14 on, Paul recognizes that these are good and knowledgeable Christians. That's his terms. And so any of this boldness that we find proclaimed in the various parts of the letter really are to help these believers dig more deeply into the gospel by which they were saved so that they can praise God more so they can serve God more. And so that they can bear out further the implications of the gospel in their daily lives, never run past the cross. Well, Paul wants these Roman believers to receive really what I guess you could call a master class in biblical doctrine. This masterful theological treatise is born and, and it is to fuel them, give them a firmer grasp on the ins and outs of the gospel. And because they have that, they should understand one thing. And this is then at the heart of this passage, Paul will not be content to stop preaching and planting churches. If there are Gentiles out there who have not heard or who at least have not accepted the gospel, then he needs to go and be with them. He needs to reach them for the gospel. After all, the Romans live and die by this gospel already. But what about those that have never accepted it? So in verse 16, Paul writes that he desires to make an offering to God of these Gentiles. He desires God to experience the sweet aroma coming out from the Gentiles themselves. And so how does he talk about this, about his ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles? He uses Old Testament terminology. He says that he, like a priest of God, is God's means of sanctifying the offering. So he wants to do this great ministry of the gospel in the nations to see believers raised up and established in righteousness and then offer them up to God and say, see, isn't this beautiful? Won't you accept these Gentiles? And of course, if they've been made righteous through the gospel, it's because of the sovereign monergistic uh, unique work of God in them already. And so their sanctification is a testimony to the fact that he's done a great ministry among them. And so he uses that priestly language. So at this point in the letter, the readers clearly understand Paul's ministry. And they also understand how the gospel works in practice. The implication is this call to unity in the church. This is the unity by which Jews and Gentiles who are equally sanctified by the Holy Spirit, as we see in the text there, can exist harmoniously in Christ, even though they come from different cultures, different languages, and have different practices, even perhaps even among their own churches in their region. So to that end, in verses 18 to 21, Paul reminds his readers how incredible it is when Gentiles in new places repent of their sin and believe the gospel. This transformation, man, that's something to boast about. And that's a godly boast. Well, pioneering work is exhilarating for Paul. And in keeping with his tireless mission over the past several years, as the Romans well know, he tells them that he's got to keep on the move. He's got to keep up this dynamic work of the Holy Spirit through his speech, through his actions, through the performing of signs and wonders. You know, this isn't about making converts. This is about making disciples. 
healthy, reproducible, and reproducing churches that can carry on the work of the Great Commission, which has commanded people to go out and make disciples in all the earth. And he wants that to go on until the end of the ages, which is right out of the the Great Commission playbook of Matthew 28. Long after he's gone, these reproducing churches should be producing new healthy believers that are continually being sanctified in Christ. And he's already planted a bunch of churches like that. He alludes to that in verse 19, that he preached widely around the Roman Empire from Jerusalem, even if perhaps briefly, as far as the borders of Illyricum, he says. And that really would be the southern Slavic states today. So it's time for him to gear up for this fourth missionary journey in new territory, in order to continue this ministry as the apostles of the Gentiles. He's got to get to Spain. Spain is next, as he mentions in verse 24, perhaps simply because the Holy Spirit has put it on his heart to to reach. And so we keep in mind that pioneering work for Paul is, is biblical and it's led by the Holy Spirit. He's not out there simply for an adventure. And so in verse 21, he quotes... Uh, the servant song of Isaiah 52. And he does so to remind us that what he's aiming to do is entirely the biblical ideal. In that servant song of Isaiah 52, it says, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Well, Paul isn't the servant of Isaiah 52. Jesus is. This is Messiah that's being proclaimed. But Paul is very aware that when Christ is heralded in new places, only then is it possible for the nations to receive the blessing, the, the sprinkling of the King of Kings, the anointed one who then anoints them with the Holy Spirit. Now, does Paul know how important he is in this kingdom work? Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. He's certainly the apostle tasked by the risen Christ to go to the kings and to go to the nations, to go to these Gentile people. And so he keeps talking about this commission. And he's sure that this westerly mission is going to be accomplished through his strivings because it's his to do. It's his groundwork to lay. But let's make sure this is very clear. Paul isn't interested in declaring his own will and and accomplishing his own plans and his own strength by his own design. He only wants the Lord's will to be done. This is the Lord's will at stake. And so from verses 22 to 33, he makes it very clear that the work here is to accomplish the Lord's plans, not his own. From verse 22 on, we learn that Paul has a few desires that he has to juggle. And this isn't easy for anybody that is striving to please the Lord while also recognizing that there are some innate desires that we have humanly, creaturely, but also within the constraints of our love for the brother, brethren. On the one hand, he eagerly desires to get to Spain. And on the way, he wants to gain some refreshing fellowship and gain some help for that mission from these Roman believers. And he wants to do that finally in person. And it's been years in the making. But on the other hand, Paul has to wrap up some unfinished business that if he left undone would compromise the very gospel of unity in Christ that he has labored so long to establish between Gentile and Jewish believers. So he realizes out of the two, he has no choice. He needs to squeeze in what he believes was going to be a quick mission to Jerusalem and everything else needs to wait until he takes care of it. So I think it really is important for us to take some time to understand the nature of that errand in Jerusalem. 
because it's not only a major plot point of Paul's ministry at this moment in time, which is around AD 57, but it's a deeply theological matter that's at the heart of the gospel that he has been preaching and writing to the Romans. Well, in brief, about 10 years prior to this point, there was a famine in Palestine that was so severe that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem never recovered. It created a kind of economic recession, and they never bounced back. They've always had financial difficulty all these years afterward. And so on Paul's third missionary journey, which perhaps began about four years ago in Ephesus and Corinth, he made a concerted effort to collect funds from the mainly Gentile churches of Macedonia and Achaia. And that's what he says in verse 26. And those areas would correspond to modern day Greece, Macedonia, into Albania. And those areas were where the prominent churches of the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, and the Corinthians were located. And at the time of writing to the Romans from Corinth, which is now, he still had to deliver the funds to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. He still had to make it there with uh, the money. So in a real sense, the material needs in Jerusalem by those believers would only be met when the material goods were successfully delivered. And so Paul aims to take care of bringing the funds as the steward of them. But there's a much deeper reason to make these funds arrive into the right hands. And so you can trace that in verses 25 and beyond. In this language of verse 25, we see that Paul's arrival in Jerusalem is considered an act of service. He is serving the saints. In verse 26, he's making a contribution, which interestingly in the Greek is the term koinonia, which is fellowship. And it suggests that Paul's act of service to the saints is to deliver loving fellowship, to deliver that intimate love of the Gentile believers to their Jewish counterparts. In verse 27, the Gentiles consider that they are doing ministry in a practical and selfless way for their suffering brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And then we also learn in verse 27 that this ministry gift is an act of pure love from the Gentiles because they voluntarily and sacrificially provide money for poor Jewish believers, all because they feel spiritually indebted to them because they, the Gentiles, were grafted into the faith of God's chosen people, Israel. There is an organic bond there. And that bond creates a debt that is met voluntarily and spiritually, but also materially. So isn't that striking that these Gentile believers who are admittedly younger in the faith than those in Jerusalem have such theological clarity as to why they need to provide this kind of assistance. Notice they don't seem to have this guilt ridden sales pitch shoved on them by Paul. In fact, he's not even asking them to contribute, but Uh, to the Romans, but to the Gentiles, he's never operated from this, uh, give up your Frappuccino once a week so that you can go rescue uh, some puppy dogs. Now let's show you some pictures of that so that you can figure out how to write the check. And we'll tell you exactly how to do that. No, no guilt ridden sales pitch, no tax deduction needed to be stated in order to rise up generously to help their brethren. They just needed to understand how the gospel works. God raised up his son, Jesus, the righteous one of Israel. And through Jesus, God saved many Jews, but they're now suffering. They need encouraging in their faith. They need the help of the family of God. And the Gentiles are united to them because they've been united in Christ. They're part of the body of Christ. And what better way to show solidarity in the family of God than in a practical way at such a needy time? Not helping would be simply unthinkable, inconscionable. 
But on the flip side, and this is important too, the Jewish believers of Jerusalem, if they did not accept that gift, that would be equally unconscionable. Think about it. What would the Jerusalem Jews be saying to the onlooking world if this massive contribution that is years in the making showed up to the door and then they stiff armed it? They said, no, thanks. We don't need help from the uncircumcised. What arrogance, what a theological problem. And ultimately, it's no help to them materially. The Jewish believers would be holding on to or at least perpetuating this idea that since the gospel was first for the Jews, since it had gotten gone out first from Jerusalem, salvation belonged to the Jews. Inclusion into the body of Christ did not extend to the Gentiles. But, but no, we understand the scriptures here and their acceptance means they would too. So verses 28 and 29 bring us back to the fact that Paul's going to have to wait to get to Rome. Only once Paul has fulfilled his kingdom work of delivering this financial aid to Jerusalem, will he be poised for another missionary journey. Let's finish this one well. Uh, There's simply no option here. If Paul doesn't accompany the contribution, then you could get a couple problems. Just think about these. For one, perhaps the gift won't make it. Anything can go wrong on a long trip from Corinth to Jerusalem. And beyond just secure delivery, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's best suited to be the one to deliver the money to the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Because after all, he's the highest spiritual authority. And he's the one that initiated this giving among the Gentile churches. So in this way, to quote from our passage, he will have put his seal on this fruit of theirs as an authority. It seems then that Paul is making sure that the Jewish believers will accept the gift if it's backed by his authority, delivered to the hands of the Gentiles, from the hands of the Gentiles into the hands of the Jewish Christians. Um, I think it would be helpful maybe if I just picked at this from yet another angle. And it's that missiological angle. Uh, As you might know, I'm working on my PhD at the Master's Seminary, and I'm doing it in the field of missions because that really was my field before coming to the seminary. I'm specifically researching the topic of contextualization, which is kind of a fancy word to say the scripture in some way needs to be made communicable to the target population. There needs to be some culturally understandable way of bringing out the content of the text, like Paul and Isaiah would say as quoted in our passage, so that those who have no news of Christ would see, and so that those who have not heard would understand And so a biblical practice of contextualization always is always is going to involve the clear articulation of the truth of the Bible, the content, and it'll always look for some social or cultural component, some symbol, if you will, to make that truth clear in its context. Never waste a crisis, right? So Paul finds this most excellent symbol of the Christian unity forged by the gospel. And he's been developing this over years. It's a gift made by believers from one end of the cultural salvation historical spectrum. And it's making this gift received by believers on the other end. Now that is cross-cultural communication. What better way could God design to show that the gospel is not theoretical, but actually practical in visible terms? Think about this vulnerable time in history in Paul's generation. The church has suffered the poisonous ravings of the Judaizers, the pervasive lies of other false teachers, the mounting pressures of pagan society. 
And in this milieu, the gospel, the gospel could be won or lost. So despite the deafening threats pervading every place the gospel was established, there was a way for the truth of the word to shine simply and clearly and to highlight the unity of the body of Christ to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire. And what is it? Well, I think it's by God's sovereign choice to divinely strike part of the body of Christ with a need that could only be met by another part of the body of Christ. To allow the economic fallout of a famine in Palestine birth a legitimate need and generate a sincere response to it. Do you see how a crisis could lead to true biblical contextualization? The gospel has created a unity that needs to be seen in real life right then and there. That's Isaiah's servant song. Uh, think of first John four eleven and 12 in this framework. Uh, this captures the concept beloved. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So show the reality of all that you believe by living out your love for one another. Be like these believers from one side of the known world and bear witness to the gospel by showing love. However, the Lord would have you to do so in the body of Christ. If you do so, it's, it's as if you're making the gospel of God visible in such a way that it's as if God himself is visible. Like first John four is saying, and so in full awareness of the risks and the rewards of going to Jerusalem, Paul asks in verses 30 to 32 that the Romans don't participate in this contribution in any other way than to do battle with him in prayer. Don't shed tears over this delayed visit. Capture what this is all about for the gospel. You know, notice in verse 30 that all three members of the Trinity are referenced. I love that. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's these prayers of the saints to the triune God that are going to facilitate both the deliverance of the gift as well as deliverance from the non-believing Jews in Judea. And it's not just that it's a monetary sum that needs to be delivered and the meeting of a practical need. There's so much writing on this trip that's theological. Money isn't the issue. The gospel is. Do you see how our section connects? Well, once Paul is assured that the Jerusalem believers have understood the spiritual significance of this material gift and have accepted it, he can scoot out of there and get on track with his fourth missionary journey. Well, sadly, we know that that trip isn't going to go as planned. And despite the best intentions that he lays out very clearly, uh, as if speaking on behalf of the Lord in verse 32, it is indeed not the will of God to bring Paul just yet to Rome for refreshing rest. Now, Paul is eventually going to get to Rome, but he's going to have to trade rest for a rest. But no matter how Paul's plans would stack up, he has this prayer wish. It's this, it's that God's peace will be with these believers at all times. And it actually already is because of the reconciliation bought them by the blood of Christ as you've studied through Romans. But, but there's more peace awaiting them as they labor in love one toward the other. Now this moves us into chapter 16 and we're going to find that in this final chapter, there are many more gospel treasures to unearth. Every name in the list of greetings has a story. 
most of them we can trace back to a specific time or set of circumstances in Paul's ministry. We can't do that with all of them. But it means that each person that we encounter is yet another manifestation of God's gospel grace as it's applied in people's lives, either in their service or in their recognition as being fellow believers. So here we have yet another example of cross-cultural communication of the gospel. This is contextualization, making the invisible visible, the reality of the content of the gospel of grace very obvious, very plain, and very beautiful to behold. And we can do all that right through a list in chapter 16. I'm always amazed to read this list because it makes me think of just how friendly the apostle Paul must have been. Man, just somebody to emulate in his type of care and concern for people. And, and he, you know, he's listed 26 people in the Roman churches, right? In this list. And he recognizes at least five specific congregations. Uh, They might be house churches. They might be larger gatherings. We don't exactly know um, for a couple of them, at least. He knows personally, at least 12 of the people in the list. And he's very acquainted with several others. He even gives little descriptors of what he knows of them. Um, He's perhaps had brief interactions with them, or he just knows them by reputation. And all of this is before he even sets foot in Rome. (laughs) Well, chapter 16 starts with Phoebe. Great place to start. The sister in the Lord that I hope you would make your goal to emulate. In verses one and two, we learn that Phoebe is probably the one who brought this letter to the Roman churches. And now tucked into this overall letter that she's going to bring are these verses, which act as a a special kind of letter of commendation that was commonly used in the ancient world. uh, So that when one is traveling on a journey as a little letter bearer, they wouldn't be disregarded as a stranger, uh, not avoided as somebody who is perhaps bringing heresy, but treated like a family member, offered sincere hospitality. And this woman is called a sister, and she's furthermore called a servant, which in many uh, translations can come out as servant, or it can come out with the Greek term deacon. Some think that she held the role of deaconess in the church, But really, apart from any official label for her service, which is kind of hard to establish at this time frame of the New Testament church and kind of hard to establish just by the use of this term, she was certainly a worthy worker in the Lord. She was a ready partner to Paul. She was there serving many others in the work of the gospel in Corinth. We know that she lived in Corinth. She was in Port Town, Sincrea. Well, immediately then, Paul is serving up Phoebe as this symbol of the unity demanded by the gospel. Let's apply the gospel by looking at our first um, contextualized example in Phoebe. She's this believer sent, this believer commended, and now she must be a believer received and cared for. Now, the next several verses from 3 to 16 are admittedly difficult to structure. The greetings seem somewhat thrown together on the page, but of course we know that it's by the Holy Spirit's design and the pen of Paul is following his promptings in the spirit. And so I do believe that there is this overarching logic to the greetings and that that bears witness to the gospel that you are so familiar with from the rest of the book. In verses three to seven, Paul is sending his greetings to his missionary co-workers who are currently in Rome. Uh, Just a little overview here. Then verses 8 to 15, Paul sends his greetings to other believers that he either knows personally or are friends of friends. And then in verse 16, he extends those greetings to everyone in the Roman churches 
as well as from the churches in the East, showing indeed this corporate solidarity in the body of Christ. And that's coming from all the churches where Paul has ministered with his gospel. Now, by sending these greetings and doing so in this order of going from those in Rome to others in Rome and those outside, you really think about how he's legitimizing the very doctrines that he spent several chapters developing. And now, keying right into verses 3 to 7, what better way to validate his theology is there than to remind the readers that in their midst, in their own churches, right alongside them are many of his co-laborers who fought with great pains to bring these doctrines through all the areas that Paul ministered. Bringing these names before the readers is kind of like putting a final finish on the doctrines themselves. He's effectively saying, you've heard me testify to the righteousness of God in the gospel over several chapters, but now I want you to see the righteousness of God lived out by my gospel co-ministers who, as it happens, are right in your churches next to you, listening as this letter is being read, read for you so that you can enter into deeper fellowship with them and even more deliberately and more deeply embrace the gospel. So he starts with some big names. Prisca, who we know is Priscilla from Acts 18, and her husband, Aquila. We recall that Priscilla and Aquila were Roman citizens, but being Jews, they were kicked out of Rome by the decree of the emperor Claudius. They headed east to Corinth, where they met and ministered with Paul. They were also tent makers of the same trade as Paul, so they were able to work with him. And later in Acts 18, we learn that they traveled to Ephesus to instruct Apollos. Well, as we see here in Romans 16, Priscilla and Aquila have returned to Rome and they host a church in their home. And in fact, later we learn in 2 Timothy 4 that they're going to go back to Ephesus because with their itinerant business, they can go now and strengthen the churches even more. Well, we have an amazing example here of full-time business people who lived for Christ who risked everything, even their own necks, all the time for the gospel. They had to juggle their careers and do the work of ministry. And risking their own necks in verse 4 is so crucial for us to see. They were ministers of the gospel, even though they had to hold down the fort with their business. And this is an example for all the churches. And so he leads off with this. Can you imagine what kind of gift it would be to have them right in your church that you right after this letter is read and everybody brings out all of their goods for the potluck. You could sit down with Prisca. You could sit down with Aquila and you could ask them to flesh out for you how the gospel made its mark in the areas that they were in. Tell me more about what Paul was doing. Tell me more about how you juggled real life and ministry. Well, the reader's of this letter, no matter whether they're in their congregation or others need to go greet them. And so that's a good word for any of us. There are missionary heroes and ministry participants all over the globe, but also all over our church. Have you taken the time to greet them no matter what title or office or job they held? Have you recognized their value in the kingdom of God in this generation? And have you been biblical by spending time with them, deepening your understanding of the gospel as you develop biblical friendships? Well, that's a charge to you. Well, in Paul's ministry out East, there's also Epinetus in verse five. He's the first convert in his region of Asia. 
And so a greeting to him in Rome would also garner many wonderful stories. If you were to go up to Epinetus and ask him about how the righteousness of God fleshed itself out from his earliest days. Seems that Paul then moves in verses six to seven from recognizing those in in Rome who were instrumental to the work of God far off to recognizing those who were the first missionaries to Rome itself. He gives us Mary, gives us Andronicus, and he gives us Junia. By moving forward uh, in, into Rome in the kind of the geography of these greetings, he's reminding the readers that the gospel of God established the righteousness of God in their very churches. They are indebted to Mary, Andronicus, and Junia. The reference of being fellow prisoners suggests that um, at some point in their story, they were persecuted the way their brother Paul was by being thrown in prison for their faith. It's interesting to note, but just based on the study of names that, um, and from the consensus of church history throughout several centuries, that Mary and Junia were likely both Jewish women. Junia was likely the wife of Andronicus. And name studies also show that Junia's name would have been a slave name, suggesting that she was possibly at this time still someone's slave. So what we can immediately appreciate is the central role in ministry that women have held since their days of serving Jesus. Whether imprisoned, slaves, or married, not that I'm linking those concepts together, mind you, um, there is worthy work to do for the gospel. And I hope it's your goal to be a worthy worker like these women, slave or free, married or not. Now, the remaining greetings through verse 15 add more to the picture of the ministerial quality of the congregations in Rome. There are several servants from the field that were local members of the Roman churches. So they brought home with them a rich heritage of righteous belief and practice right from the field into their congregations. You get Urbanus in verse 9, who is a co-worker, which might mean he was an itinerant missionary um, that was known to Paul. Apelles in verse 10 is the approved one, which probably signifies that he went through a very significant trial of faith on the field, like so many uh, of us do as missionaries, but he came out as a shining example to the churches and everyone knew about it. So greet him and go ask him about how the gospel bolstered his faith. Ampliatus in verse eight, Stachys in verse nine, Persis in verse 12. These are all considered beloved by Paul meaning that he shared some kind of affectionate bond with each of them. And of course, he recognizes that they must have had that affectionate bond in the churches. So go greet them. Rufus in verse 13. Now, this is an interesting one. He's probably the son of Simon of Cyrene, who in Mark 15, 21, you'll remember, helped Jesus bear his cross on the way up to Golgotha to be crucified. So Rufus, his son, and Rufus's mother, Simon's wife, are dear to Paul, so much so that Rufus's mother has become like a mother to Paul. The names in the list then reveal so much about the kinds of spiritual influences that are there in the churches in Rome. What a great place to, to be at that time, right? Now, the greetings list also reveals a lot about the socioeconomic and cultural makeup of the churches. Let me just fire off some statistics that can help you understand how the greetings give us this dynamic flair in the Roman church. So maybe you can get a better sense of what you've read. Here we go. There are a number of women that Paul greets. There's probably about eight, depending on the spelling of the names. If, if we can correctly ascertain which names are feminine or which might just be shortened version of masculine names. 18 of the names uh, in the greetings are Greek. Uh, half of them are in verses 14 and 15. Uh, 
And those are the ones that seem to have a little less personal connection to Paul, at least in verses 14 to 15. Now, interestingly, eight of the names are Latin, which uh, uh, could mean that um, the Roman Christians there were conversant in Latin, would have at this point made great partners with Paul on his ministry to Spain, because Spain at this point in history, it was part of the Roman Empire. It used Latin in its big cities. And perhaps Paul hoped to recruit some of these very folks. Those with Latin uh, names probably had the Latin language down and they would have been more useful in this fourth missionary journey than even those partners that would have come from the East and been using primarily Greek. Seven of the people that are greeted seem Jewish in origin, according to their names. Six of the names were common slave names. And so they could either be current slaves freed men and women or children of slaves who took their parents' names. And then furthermore, at least three of the names are confirmed as slaves. So what we're looking at when we sample this greetings list, what we draw out from these names is a very dynamic, multicultural, socioeconomically diverse group of sinners who have been individually united with Christ and collectively united with each other in God's family. So just like our examples of biblical contextualization that we already pulled out of chapter 15, here again, these happy greetings from Paul highlight the proper application of the gospel. And it is this, that when spiritual fellowship is pursued in the church, then it will result in the visible display of the unity of the body of Christ. Now, I I think it's helpful to just jump ahead to other greetings in verses 21 to 23. This greetings motif that we see, um, Paul lists those who are currently serving with him in Corinth. You have Timothy, who's been with him nearly a decade and is like a a son to him. You have Jason, who is probably the one referenced in the tumultuous events of Acts 17 in Thessalonica imprisoned and released, but other names are less commonly known to us. Tertius, his professional shorthand secretary, Gaius, who's uh, the host of the Corinthian congregation, uh, and Erastus as well, who's a city administrator in Corinth, whatever role that might've been uh, of influence that it could have been, and a fellow believer named Quartus. But when we get back to verse 16, we see what he wants you to do with all of this beyond just recognizing he wants you to greet with a holy kiss. Godly greetings in Rome are shown by holy kisses. Now, references to the holy kiss appear in the Corinthian letters, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter. It's not an uncommon type of thing. It is meant to be a visible greeting. Interestingly, although, uh, it wasn't practiced among pagans. So there's a sense to which this was the loving affection that the church was to give within the church. Loving affection isn't hidden behind eyes and smiles from a distance. It's touch oriented in a godly and yet not sensual way, which I think is why it's so hard for those of us that have to be in some lockdown scenario and can't have that normal physical contact. There's something missing in the greeting. Where's the holy kiss? See, the holy kiss is bearing out what is true within. It's yet another application of the gospel that Paul means to highlight. It's another way to contextualize unity in the faith. Those who come from different socio-cultural economic realities greet each other with a holy kiss to represent the unity that they share. Now, uh, I was in Italy for five years, and my wife is Italian from there, and ministering in Italy taught me a lot about the Holy Kiss today. It's not 
as ancient a practice as you might think. In the Italian church context, uh, you just have to be ready for a kiss on the cheek, but you kind of have to know how to do it. If you don't have great orientation of what right is or left is, you learn it on your first visit to a church in Rome. You learn to bear right, because if you bear left, you get an unholy kiss right on the smacker. (laughs) It's the most natural thing to bear right, lean in and kiss an Italian. Uh, Actually, if you look around the shepherd's conference, you find it's not just the Italians that do it. Church leaders from all over are practicing a holy kiss because they want to show the love that they have for the brethren. And so we find out that the holy kiss is no scandal at all. And it's not so much even an ancient practice, but it is a contextualization of the gospel. I know that's a little shock value for you, but the point here is Paul's point. And you know what it is that whether or not we lean in every time we see each other, even when we're tempted to socially distance, even if we didn't have to, we should lean in in some way to give a greeting that shows a visible expression of what we feel for that person. Find that way. I hope you're not the type that you see a big crowd and you immediately think, where's the coffee and where's the snacks? I hope you take the time to fellowship with the people and show demonstrably that what is in you, the gospel, is now what you give in some tangible expression of love to them. This is the oneness of Christ, the oneness in Christ that that transcends socioeconomic, cultural, linguistic barriers. And if you fail to find the way to contextualize that oneness in your relationships, in your circumstances, then perhaps you haven't been paying attention to the book of Romans. If the gospel really is deeply rooted in you, then it will work itself out. And so there must be some flesh and blood real time approach to demonstrating the unity principle of the gospel. And so we greet one another. We apply the gospel to real life. And, and that's exactly the work here. It's, it's Paul laying down gospel application in real flesh and blood, real time ways. He finishes verse 16 with this gospel application in mind, saying that it's uh, the churches everywhere that he has ministered to that send their greetings. They send a virtual holy kiss. And that's out of the abundance of the love that they have, that they share. And those are Gentiles and Jews together. And so these are the inspiring relationships that we should aspire to have in our own congregation. But gospel greetings have a limit. The holy kiss isn't for the unholy. Christian affection is not, pay attention, please. Christian affection is not to be extended or even casually offered to those who actively work to undo the ministry of the gospel. In verses 17 to 20, what might seem like an abrupt abrupt change isn't. It's a, a very fitting insertion into Paul's argument for a contextualized gospel. You need to look out for those church attendees who seem to have it all right, but get into fleshly disputes. They fight sound doctrine in a way that shows that they aren't interested in overcoming bad doctrine with good teaching. They're interested in propagating bad doctrine. Look out. These are the smooth talkers. These are the kind eyed, shiny teeth, friendly types that are really out there setting up stumbling blocks so that you would fall away from the, from the faith. 
And that's what Paul's getting at. His demeanor, though, is is really that he doesn't anticipate that that's what's uh, in the midst of the Roman church right now. It's not a typical type of warning, but he can anticipate that where the gospel bears fruit, where the visible, tangible sign of the truth is, coming along running will be the adversaries sent by Satan, their father. So be warned now, there are subtle tentacles of evil that want to coil around you. And that's a good word for us too, right? But don't be fooled. Turn away from them. You don't want their bondage. They're slaves to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. In verse 19, he turns the corner. He extols their faithfulness once again. He shows that they are an example of model obedience for all the churches. And so he rejoices publicly. He wants everyone to hear this. It's penned. We're reading this 2000 years later about their model obedience. This is a great group of believers. The only problem is that the more the gospel takes root, the more Satan is going to try and strike at the heel of the Lord of the church. Throughout early church history, the book of Acts records that where the gospel was obeyed, party crashers would follow. And that's what is really on the fence here. So in verse 19, part of getting away from the coils of these tentacles of evil, verse 19, we can align with Jesus's own statement, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, in any case, Paul is absolutely confident that these readers will be victorious in the end over their adversaries. And so in verse 20, he gives them an amazing future prediction, which is really a simple statement. He takes them right back to the earliest prophecy of gospel victory. And you know where it is. It's Genesis 3.15, what we call the proto-gospel, the seedbed of the gospel. Note how in Genesis 3.15, Yahweh himself proclaims to the serpent, to Satan, that the coming seed of the woman shall bruise him on the head, even though the serpent will bruise Messiah on the heel. Paul uses the terms crush, Satan, foot, and he makes that connection to remind us that God's proclamation of Satan's eternal curse means that he will face that curse, that the victory of the gospel will assure that curse, and all this through the proclamation of Messiah, the seed of the woman. Well, this underfoot terminology actually references yet another passage, and we know it as another major messianic text, Psalm 110. There, Yahweh is speaking to Messiah, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But when we get to this passage, we see that Paul is prophesying that God will establish total peace when he crushes Satan under the feet of believers. Why does he say that we are the ones who will crush Satan under our feet? Well, you know why. This is not to trump Messiah. It's to show our union with Messiah. The prophecy is pointing right to unity in Christ. That by being united with him, it's the same as saying that Satan will be crushed under his feet. As saying he will be crushed under ours. And that's the gospel again. Christ's victory is our victory. And to that, I I think we just would all respond, hallelujah. But the end of verse 20 gives another benediction another prayer wish that surpasses a hallelujah. 
he knows that this gospel reality in the lives of believers will come to pass. Victory is ours. And what does it result in? What it results in now is grace. What will it result in in the future? More grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Crushing Satan and his minions is just the beginning of an eternal destiny accomplished and accompanied by the grace of God. That's the gospel. Well, in the final section, uh, just as we wrap things up here, Romans 16, 25 to 27, we see a bookend with the very opening verses of chapter 1. This glorious doxology summarizes the reality of the gospel that we've seen play out time and time and again in our passage today. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, celebrates the power of the gospel of God with these Western believers because the mystery that has been hidden from the ancients has now been revealed to all the nations. And what is the mystery? The mystery, quite simply, is that God has provided helpless sinners with his own righteousness on the merits of his own son, propitiating his own wrath at his son's cross. So all of us who are condemned by God, which the ancients knew, can now be justified by God, reconciled by God, at peace with God, entirely by grace, entirely through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been revealed So this mysterious gospel has leapt right out of the Old Testament and been made visible through the perfectly righteous person of Jesus Christ. And what's more, the mystery is now visible in the lives of God's children. So now is the time for all who share in the glorious status of the redeemed to show that they are one in Christ. And failure to demonstrate that godly behavior, that godly fellowship would suggest that the gospel has failed in you. Not that the gospel is a failure. And so in verse 25, absolutely Paul sings praises to God. He says, God is able to establish these believers according to these very doctrines that make up his gospel. This gospel is the message preached about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is what strengthens them. Well, notice Paul isn't actually making um, an imperative, a command, or even a wish that they would find a way to strengthen themselves in the gospel. No, he's saying that if they are in Christ, they will be strengthened. They will be able to bear up under the enemy's temptations. They will glorify Christ as approved slaves of righteousness in everything in their lives. You see, failure is no option when God supplies the strength. Let me say that again. Failure is no option when God supplies the strength. And so it is God's will that more and more nations hear the gospel of God, that more and more nations see the glorious fruit of righteousness lived out in those nations where there are already believers. And as readers, we end this glorious doxology asking this immensely important question in, in this world today that is fraught with chaos with fears of all kinds, endless distractions that perpetuate sorrow. What's the solution? How will we see God get his glory in the nations? Well, the solution is always the same. It is through the gospel of the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Not God in his wisdom without Jesus Christ 
but truly the wisdom of God through Jesus Christ. We proclaim, we obey, and we display the glorious gospel of Christ. And because God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over sin, sovereign over our salvation and sovereign over our sanctification, then all glory goes to him and all glory will always without end go to him. It's limitless. It's timeless. It's the praise and worship that knows no end to the God of our salvation. Well, I think it's fitting for us to end our time. I know that I am over. But I think you need to hear the gospel again. Would you consider the glorious truths that you've studied all year? Would you consider that you were predestined as God's elect? Predestined to receive saving faith, uh, saving grace by faith. Predestined to be freed from guilt and condemnation. Freed through the imputation of God's righteousness by justification. Would you see that because you have been redeemed, you now live as a slave of righteousness, as a child of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to engage in victorious battle against the flesh today? Would you see in Romans that we still wait to experience this total glorification? We're not translated into glory yet, but we do have hope that we will bear fruit in righteousness because his promise of righteousness comes all the way back to the old Testament through its prophets. And that's a promise of fruit for everyone that he's effectually called both to us, mainly Gentiles, but also to all national ethnic Israel in the future. And any who along the way have been added to the church. And so if these truths are embedded in us, then they're going to flow out of us. There will be gospel-centered works of grace that apply the invisible benefits of our salvation in clear, demonstrable actions of love for Christ and for all who, like us, are in Christ. What a wise God through Jesus Christ. And so as we end the book of Romans, I think it's fitting for us to recite together another beloved doxology that you know well from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Would you turn to Romans eleven thirty-three to 36 and recite the doxology out loud with me? We'll use it as our closing prayer. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.